Here's a question for you. What do you think about when you hear the word elder? Well, if you're in your 20s and 30s, pretty safe bet. You get a vision of somebody who's kind of old, decrepit, in the waning years of their life and, and not in a place where they're sort of at their prime and offering incredible things to the world. If you are in the middle years of your life, the word elder may kind of have an association with elderly and it may be a source of fear, um, something that you're trying to and fighting like crazy to avoid. Well, my guest today, Chip Connolly, has written a book called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, which is really a reclamation of the word elder and the notion of what it means to be, to serve the role of an elder in society, in business, in work, and the incredible value. And here's the kind of fascinating thing about that. What is the age range that we think about when we think about this? Well, one of the things that I explore with Chip is the notion that we may be entering this phase of our lives way, way earlier than we thought. And the wisdom that folks in their 40s, 50s can bring to business, to work, to the world in in a world that is increasingly fast-paced, distracted, hyper-focused on the small granular things, the wisdom and experience of decades on the planet, pattern recognition, astonishing experience, the ability to get the bigger picture, the holistic gist of things is increasingly valued in this world, but also the mindset that comes from playing the role of what Chip uh, described as a mentor somebody with incredible amounts to offer, but also who comes from a place that is not driven by attachment to uh, accomplishment and ego in the past, but curiosity is a critical thing in the conversation. This is a wide-ranging conversation. Chip was the founder of Joie de Vivre Hotels, a huge boutique hotel chain that he built, grew for about 24 years, and then sold before then taking on a strategic and advisory role at Airbnb, where he has had a huge impact on a company where he is twice the age of the average age person in that business. We dive into all of this in today's conversation really eye-opening. I learned a ton from it. I'm excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. The show is sponsored by meditation app 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions, and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting-edge science and hard-won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new Marketing Hub Enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, and create more personal personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com slash Wondery. That's hubspot.com slash Wondery. So um, it's funny. I was trying to figure out when we first met. It was a while back now. I, I can't think even... it's got to have been a, a, over a decade ago. Yeah. I, I don't really remember the context other than um, I always thought of you as 
a glowing guy, <laughs> which is a funny thing. I mean, I've actually, no one's ever said that to me, but I, people have yeah. said it in other ways to me. But I, the idea that you are um, someone who is not, you know, like enlightened, but um, is aware enough about the importance of having something radiate inside of you mm. to know that um, in a world that uh, prizes what's external that, you know, sometimes the greatest treasure is actually inside. And it's a matter of how do you allow it to radiate a little bit. Yeah. And uh, well, thank you for that. And uh, and I think we've both been on that same quest. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes knowing it, sometimes being completely clueless to the fact yeah. that that's what's going on. I got, you know, this is, you know, and this can, I'm fine with this potentially being on, on air or not. Um, so I had a book launch on Tuesday. Yeah. I have a TED talk tonight at TED headquarters. And last night I got a, a cancer diagnosis on uh, nothing terrible, but a serious enough one that I'll probably have to start radiation on my prostate. So, you know, sometimes you have to actually take it all in and just um, realize that, uh, you know, the process of digesting life requires enough space to really let it metabolize. And, you know, this new news I just got, um, starting a book tour that's a month and a half long, and then literally going straight into our modern elder academy opening to the public after a, a six-month beta period. I didn't prepare for this. Mm. The good news is nothing, I'm not, you know, prostate cancer doesn't, go move quickly, especially when you're a little older, but, um, it is like, okay, you know, digest this mm. <laughs> and the process of digesting life. If you're really doing it is, um, is beautiful because it actually, what we know, you know, and Victor Frankl taught us this a long time ago with, uh, his man's search for meaning in a concentration camp is that, you know, sometimes it's when you're, we're struggling with the thing that we didn't want to hear, didn't want to know the bad news, the bad feeling, that's when the magic happens. Mm. Uh, it can happen. Yeah. I mean, it's, and, and there's like the sort of modern overlay to that is this, this kind of fascinating field of inquiry around post-traumatic growth. Oh, um, I love that. I, you know, I've never heard that, that expression. Yeah. It's not my term. It's, yeah. it's sort of out of research that I've been exposed to over the last few years where, you know, the, the, the exploration is why do some people who go through a similarly yeah. deeply traumatic incident awakening, piece of news, um, why do, some people it destroys them. Mm. And some people, for some reason, it becomes a catalyst for, yes, there's going to be pain and suffering, but somehow they emerge from that. Um, in, and it becomes this experience of profound growth and an elevating experience at the end of the day, you know, like when they're yeah. finally like moved through it. And I'm fascinated by the, the difference there also. And what are the characteristics? What are the how do pe why do people experience it one way or the well, other? Well, as you were saying that, I, I I realized that my natural response, not my natural, my habitual response would be to attain hmm. um, as opposed to attune. Meaning I would figure out how to get as damn resilient as I could be and understand this thing and we'll, we'll whip cancer. And then, you know, one of the things I, I guess I've learned as I've gotten older is the shifting from attain to attune. There are some times in my life where, you know, the attainment mode is exactly the path I need to be on. And, and then there's other times when the attunement mode is where, where the learning is going to happen. At age 56, I took up surfing. I'm now turning 58 next month. And um, <laughs> surfing like yoga is not an attain sport. It's an attune yeah. sport. You really have to attune yourself with the waves. And what a beautiful way for me to realize that, frankly, you know, when sometimes the news that comes in, you just sort of like, it's not about becoming, you know, type A about it. It's actually sort of like taking it in and mm. saying, okay, what am I going to do with this? So... Yeah. Um, I mean, it's interesting also because you have um, in your background, for, for, for those who, who, um, who don't know Chip's background, we had, Chip and I actually sat down and we, we filmed the conversation years ago that we'll sing, certainly link to here, but, but let's ju just touch on a, a bit of that. Um, you spent um, the better part of 24, 25 yeah. years founding and building this incredible um, hotel chain that largely 
consumed your being, your waking being <laughs> for two and a half decades. It did. You know, it was called Joie de Vivre. Uh, still is called Joie de Vivre. Um, I sold it, but I, Joie de Vivre means joy of life. It was not exactly the most practical name in the world. Uh, a lot of people don't know how to spell it, what it means, or, you know, etc. But I loved that the mission statement of the company was also the name of the company. We were, we were in the business of, uh, you know, creating joy. But it was all-consuming. It really was. And um, a lot of entrepreneurs have a tendency to hitch their sense of self-esteem to the ups and downs of the roller coaster of their business. And I was one of those people for sure. And we went through the dot-com bust. So we were a California company. So we, were, we had 52 boutique hotels. Um, we were the second largest in the U.S. after Kimpton. And all of our hotels were in California. And we had a dot-com bust. And then we had the Great Recession. And right at Toward the start of the Great Recession, I had a flatline experience where I had a broken ankle, a bacterial infection in my leg, and I was on a really strong antibiotic and giving a speech in St. Louis and on crutches. And, and at, so you're on stage. I'm on stage. I didn't go flatline while I was standing up on the crutches, thank God, because I would have fallen over. I It was right after the speech. I wasn't feeling well. I was feeling quite nauseous, signing books for my book, Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. So it's all, all about self-actualization and moving up the pyramid of to self-actualization when, in fact, my physiological needs at the base of the pyramid were in serious trouble. And, um, you know, when the second woman came up and she was an African-American woman, woman said, you look awfully white. And I didn't know what she meant. And that's the last thing I remember hearing. And I went out for three minutes unconscious and paramedics showed up quickly. And uh, as soon as they put heart monitors on me, I went flatline and I did multiple times. So at age 47, I had to really get clear about what was important in my life. What is the good life according to Chip? And at that moment, I realized I, I really, 22 years into running the company I'd started and being the face of the company, I didn't want to do it anymore. And I felt like Frankel, um, mm. this sense of being handcuffed and going into a severe great recession that I knew was going to be punishing. And within two years, I'd sold the company and at the bottom of the market. And, you know, it was uh, financially okay, but not the as good as it could have been. But it was like my life, I got it back. And um, so I really, I you know, I, I, the, the allure of entrepreneurship can be fascinating to people. And yet it can feel like handcuffs uh, as well. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting that you say that because I have... I've spoken with, I've worked with, um, I've known, as I'm sure you have, so many people over the years who have left a job that they perceived as being handcuffs or, quote, golden handcuffs. Right. And they didn't want to work for someone else. They wanted the freedom to work for themselves, only to largely recreate, even if the, yeah. the, the facts were different of the company that they founded and then created and grew, and then became successful externally, the sort of the fundamental constraints that were crippling them working for somebody else, they recreated in yeah. their own company and came a time where they hated showing up at work at the <laughs> company that they built. You know, it's sort of like dating somebody and then, you know, you break up and then you start dating someone else. It's like, oh, they're just like that last person. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's like, maybe it's me. <laughs> yeah, there's a, you know, we tend to create uh, comfortable habitats for ourselves. And even if the com in the comfort, we're full of um, all kinds of uh, neuroses and, and challenging things. So I, I, I will say, and I really, once I knew I wanted to go, hmm. even though it happened, it was like, I went, it went from, it was the light switch wasn't on a dimmer. It was just like, on to off. Once I knew I, I wanted to move on, it wasn't hard for me. And I had two years to prepare for it, but it, my gosh, it was hard for everybody else. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, we all wear these identities. And so, uh, and I, I, I think of them as like name tags and we have these name tags that are stuck to our skin and pulling it off is, is painful. And uh, especially if you have hair on your chest, I do. And the bottom line is it was a really interesting process to see how everybody around me was having a hard time meet with me ending an identity that I had. Um, and we do that all the time. And the part that's fascinating about midlife is, um, can I riff for a minute on this? Yeah, totally. So we, as, a, as society and communities have a great history of creating um, rites of passage and celebrations. When people are going through transitional times, think puberty and bat mitzvah, bar mitzvah, quinceanera, 
uh, going from adolescence to adulthood, commencement ceremonies, graduating high school, maybe college. You're going to get married, so you'll have a wedding. You're going to have a baby. You'll have a bridal shower. You die, you have a funeral. But between bridal shower and funeral, there's nada. And the reason there's nothing is because the longevity in the United States in 1900 was 47 years old. And then it grew to 77 years old, 100 years later. So between 1900 and 2000, we added three decades of life. So in 1900, midlife was 23 or 24. You know, that didn't, you didn't need anything. Of that. But by 1965, we had created, or a psychologist had created the term midlife crisis. Mm. That was 53 years ago. And we have done zero to create a rite of passage in midlife. midlife which, and midlife is full of transitions. It's ending a career and doing something else or a job, having a divorce, um, mm. men- menopause. Yeah. For, and, for so many kids leaving the empty home Empty nester, also, right? exactly. And we don't have anything. So this is part of the reason, as I was writing my new book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, I decided to create a modern elder academy. It's the first midlife wisdom school mm. in the world on three acres of beachfront in Mexico, uh, in Baja, one hour north of Cabo San Lucas, because I think we need a place where people go and imagine how to mine their mastery of what they've experienced in life. And then how do you repurpose that in some new way, but being fully conscious of what it is you want to do. So you don't just, you know, create the same habitat that you are actually trying to, to move away from. Yeah, I mean, it it makes so much sense to me. Um, you, know, you and I are I'm, I'm I'm a couple years behind you, but we're you know in that similar window where we've done a bunch of things. But yeah, yeah, there's this, and it's almost like we're trying to figure out where, where, where are we now? It both in the the narrative arc of our own lives, but also in the the greater arc of where we fit in society in terms of contribution, relationship, um, all these different things, and. Um, and it's funny too. I I think um I think I'm like the last year of Gen X, and you're like the early years of Boomers, right? Uh, so, yeah, the late the late years of Boomers. Right. Yeah, yeah. So we're yeah four right. or five years away. So um, and and Gen Xers were kind of like always commonly known as like we just don't believe in anything. <laughs> we're just like we just got sandwiched <laughs> in the middle. Right. And know. plus, you're a small generation, so no right. one talks about Gen Xers. It's all about Millennials right. and Boomers. There was like three years where it was all about Gen X, and boom, done. So we're like <laughs> forgotten. <laughs> Um, but it is interesting that as I have similar conversations with friends now, um, really trying to navigate, like, what is our, what is our place in the world? And as stuff happens to us and to mm. friends of us, and, and we try and figure that out too. Um, and we also know that, that, um, you know, there's a lot of value that we can bring to all parts of our world and to all parts of our life, but there's also a lot of stuff we have to let go of. Um, and I want to dive into that a lot more with you. There's one you brought up the um you decided to start this this uh place in Mexico. Um mm-hmm. when we talked a couple of years back, you were on this maniacal festival adventure. Yeah. Did, 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 is this a part yeah, I mean, you know, was this sort of like a an, an inquiry process for you or So yeah, to to sort of create the chronology, I sold yeah. my company, I had space in my life. I wrote a book called Emotional Equations and you know, it came out in early 2012 and did really well. It was a New York Times bestseller and I and it was really frankly in many ways doing the catharsis of my past few years since the that flatline experience. And um and then I sort of asked myself, okay, I have space. What do I want to do? And I had been at that point on the the Burning Man, uh, the art art and crazy festival um, in Nevada on the board for a few years. And I was like, wow, what kind of festivals exist around the world? And I wasn't just looking at music festivals or transformational festivals. I want to go to religious pilgrimages and, you know, art, art and film festivals, et cetera. And there really wasn't anything. So I decided, okay, um, I would like to see if I could fancy myself to be the the world's leading expert on festivals. And I spent a couple of years doing that. I, one year in particular, I, I went to 36 festivals in 20 countries, and including Maha Kumbh Mela, which is 100 million people at the Ganges River. It's a, the, his, the biggest you know collection of humanity happens every 12 years, the big one. And then the smaller ones with 20 to 50 million people happen every three years. I, what I was fascinated by was in a world that is full of URLs, websites, why is it that festivals are blowing up 
and it, with the mm. IRL experience, in real life experience. And the more digital we get, the more ritual we need. So the idea of collective effervescence, which is a phrase yeah, Emil that, Durkheim. that Emil Durkheim yeah. came up with studying, Emil, uh, studying re- religious pilgrimages back uh, in the early 20th century. Um, I was fascinated by that. Still am. Still go to festivals occasionally. <laughs> but so I, and I, com- I started a company called Fest 300, which is then merged with a company called Everfest, which is the largest uh, um, festival di- discovery site in the world. Um, but along the way, soon after I started that Fest 300 site, I got a you know a tap on the shoulder, so to speak, from uh, the Brian, Brian Chesky, who was the co-founder and CEO of Airbnb. Yeah. And that's when I sort of said, okay, I'm going to try to do both these things, this festival thing and Airbnb. And that lasted about three months. Um, and I was like, no, the Airbnb thing is like a right. full-time role as the in-house mentor to Brian. And then I became the head of global hospitality and strategy. Yeah. And I want, I want to, I want to dive into that. The, um, before we leave the festival uh, exploration behind though, I mean, it sounds like yes, on one level, it was for you a fascination with, with why is this happening in culture right now? But at the same time, I can't help also noticing that your immersion in, in festival culture and deep global travel happened at this sort of like crux yeah. move in your own personal life too. Yeah, it was a fascinating time. I was, you know, it's so interesting to look back at your life yeah. and to sort of see the the journey you've been on and see the sort of almost like the, what's the, the common thread. And I think uh, during that time, I was in a, in a place where I really was wanted to explore like a child. And, you know, um, and I, I didn't know festivals all that well. But I think more than anything, I, I was fascinated by humanity. You know, just the, the element of the, the need to... Uh, the, when collective effervescence kicks in, what happens is our sense of separation, uh, the ego starts to evaporate and what comes in its place is this communal sense of joy and um i think you had rada on the show recently yeah. rada and i had a, a two, on, on my book launch night uh, a couple nights ago we had a, a, a talk at story uh here in new york and you know the idea of rada argawal started daybreaker and um so again that's a similar form of like okay how do we somehow move out of our identities and move into this place of communal joy. Um, and I'm fascinated by that, and I'm, I think I will continue to be. Um, of course, I started a company called Joie de Vivre when I was 26, so yeah, joy has been always a fascinating emotion for me. But um, I think more than anything, I was maybe searching for some of my own joy, mm. having you know been handcuffed to my company for many years and uh, really ready to sort of liberate myself from that. Yeah, and and I it, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, in in a way, it's almost like your immersion in the festival scene for a window of time was like a, a certain, in a way, a rite of passage for you. <laughs> I, I think it <laughs> or was a series of rites of passage. It was. Yeah. It also gave me a, a great sense that, um, and I talk about this a lot these days, that when you are curious and engaged, you sort of become a little bit timeless. I mean, we still have age moving in our lives. But uh, I have a lot of people, you know, asking me today, uh, since this, my new book is really about midlife and beyond in terms of the workplace and people just saying, well, I, I you know, I'm, I'm worried that people will see me as a 58 year old. And it's like, well, truly when you're actually in a place of curiosity and engagement, people lose track of your age. It, it's true. And it, you may have, you may be full of wrinkles. You may have a bunch of, of scars of, you know, of life, on your physical body, but when you are in that state of engagement and curiosity, we are all in somewhat of a timeless space. And I think in the festival world, which in certain elements of the festival world, it's incredibly narcissistic, and it's you know everybody's showing lots of skin, and um, you know not exactly the thing you want to do in your mid to later fifties. Uh, but the truth is that when people really see you for your energy more than they see you for the physical existence, people start to realize, my God, I'm very drawn to you. And I'm not talking I'm not I'm not talking about necessarily romantically here, but I'm talking about people are just drawn. So I would just say whatever it is, you know, it doesn't have to be a collective environment. It could be literally taking photographs 
and photographs in the process of being a photographer, which is a very personal process. It can be. You could get into that engaged and curious state. It could be when you're writing. It could Mm -hmm. be running on the beach. It could be whatever it is. And I think the thing that's interesting about, I think, the first half of our life versus the second half is the first half of our life is about accumulating uh, friends, stuff, relationships, children, potentially, um, roles and identities. And the second half of our life is about editing. And that editing process of understanding, getting clearer on what's important. Someone said to me once, you, you know, you're old enough to take up surfing but young enough to know what's important. Um, I'm sorry, you're young enough, that, uh, the other way around, but I love the fact I got it wrong. You're young enough to take up surf. You're, you're young enough to take up surfing, old enough to know what's important. And <laughs> the fact I got it wrong suggests that it is all very fluent. Um, I think there's something to that. Good Life Project is supported by Signature Hardware. So if you're looking for the perfect item to take your kitchen or bathroom or house up a notch, head over to SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. They offer an incredibly wide variety of pieces for every room in your house with more than 20 years experience supplying vanities, sinks, tubs, hardware, plus all the classics, latest styles, and they're in sync with all the trending colors and design touches. And they also have amazing customer service to help guide you through the process. So you'll never feel lost or intimidated. Gotta love a company that really stands behind what they offer. Stephanie and I actually picked out a collection of eight furnishings that we love. They're unique and are 100% our style, so maybe you'll like them too. And you can see for yourself at SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. You'll be amazed at the variety and the quality. So visit SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife to find your style today. That's SignatureHardware.com slash goodlife. Or just click the link in the show notes now. Real life is an all is perfect, but with signature hardware, it is beautiful. Good Life Project is supported by BetterHelp. So many of us are going through a lot right now and could really use someone to talk to and friends and family, they can be great. But talking with someone who is truly qualified to help you feel better can be a real game changer. And BetterHelp can do just that. They're the world's largest online counseling service. You can get started no matter where you are in the world quickly. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Then you schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort, privacy, and safety of your own space. And they make it easy and free to change counselors if you feel you'd like to try someone else. BetterHelp also gives you access to an incredible range of expertise, which might not be available where you are. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid may be available. So visit betterhelp.com slash goodlife. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash goodlife and join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. And as a special offer for Good Life Project listeners, you'll get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash goodlife. The thing that's fascinating about longevity today is um, Mary Catherine Bateson, uh, Margaret Mead's uh, daughter, talked about the midlife atrium. So we ha- we're all going to maybe have 10 or 20 years longer in life than maybe our parents or grandparents. And the question is, when, does, when in your life does that occur? A lot of people have sort of thought of, okay, that 10 to 20 years you get is at the end. So you're just decrepit longer. The, the actual truth is not the case. In fact, what you get is you get more midlife. You get a longer midlife. So this midlife crisis has become a marathon. It was 45 to 65. Now it's 35 because people feel irrelevant earlier to 75. Because if you're going to live to 100, you may work to 75. And all of that's interesting and maybe illuminating to realize, okay, I'm 57 years old. I I did a longevity um, online calendar the other day or or test, which said, okay, how long are you going to live to? said I was going to live till age 98. Well, do the math. If If you start counting at age 18 when I became an adult, I've had 39 years of adulthood. I have 41 years of adulthood ahead. Mm. I'm not even at halftime as an adult. And that kind of thinking helps open up this midlife atrium to imagine the air, the light, and the possibility flowing into uh, a period of time that for many people, uh, people think of it as a dark and scary time. 
Yeah. I, I wonder, though, if, and, and I completely agree with everything you said, I, I wonder if the reason so many people think of it as a dark and scary time, I mean, on the one hand, yes, a lot, I think a lot of people perceive themselves as being closer to the end, like mortality becomes realer. Right. Um, but on the other hand, I feel like it, it is a moment for so many people. And as you so like profoundly observed, this moment is happening earlier and earlier. You know, it's happening yeah. in the 30s for a lot of people now. It's an awakening to the um, the existential question. It's an awakening to the fact that, huh, so I'm, I'm waking up, I'm working my ass off, I'm putting my head on the pillow at night, every night, and I know I'm really busy, but I have no idea why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And it's not really filling me up. And I think that's a lot of where the, it, it is, yes, an acknowledgement of getting close to mortality, but also uh, an awakening to the, the, the truth of the fact that most of us, you know, the way we contribute to the world is, is largely devoid of genuine purpose and expression. Yeah. I think uh, this is uh, an area I think we learned from the millennials and, and I'll come yeah. back to that in a moment, but I, I this, agree with this. But the, <laughs> the happiness curve is a great book. Jonathan Rausch book. I, I'm actually looking forward to hanging out with him in DC this Sunday. Um, and and it, the study, all I did was popularize something that was already out there, which is the U-curve of happiness. But it's a really good book because it actually helps us to understand what's going on in our 40s that just sort of like kicks us on the butt. And, and across virtually all cultures in the world, 40s is your low point, you know, usually about 45, maybe 47. I had my flatline experience at 47. Um, and, and then it gets better. People get happier in each uh, decade after that, partly because they start getting clearer on what's important to them. The reason I think the millennials have something to teach us on this is that uh, I think the fact that the iPhone was introduced in 2007, what hasn't been talked about a lot is the iPhone and the idea of mobile technology blended work and uh, leisure in a way that wasn't quite there before. Yes, people worked on weekends and they did stuff at night. But when you have a mobile uh, piece of technology that you actually are walking around with um, and at nighttime or on the weekends, it is it goes off with a text, with a, not text, with a, yeah, with a text or with some message or it, you, the fusing of work and life and leisure uh, ha, w was more blended than work-life balance could ever define it in such a way that I think what it meant was people earlier in life realized my work and my life, you know, as Khalil Gibran said, work is love made visible. And I want my work to be something that is purposeful for me. And so one of the things we can learn, and I think it's true of anybody in that 20s era, people, it was true of the hippies back in the, the baby boomer era that they wanted to do something that was meaningful. But I do think it's more, even more like grounded in the fact that the world is so blended today that if you think that you're just going to go have a job and leave your identity, personality, sense of purpose, and maybe even your values at the door while you do your eight to 10 hours, and then you go back and pick that up before you take the subway or the train or the car home, I don't think people are younger are willing to, to live that way. I actually think it may affect in positive ways, that U-curve of happy, happiness, such that 40s are not this wake-up period of like, how the hell did I ever get here? Mm. Um, and it, because people will be a little more conscious earlier in life about what they want to do. Plus, the idea of the three-stage life of you learn, then you earn, then you retire. It, the millennials look at that and say, why would anybody live their life that way? <laughs> Whereas my generation, the boomers, right, that's the, way it that's was. the only right. way you had to live. You know, And so it's like, okay. They, they are just like, you know, they take a, a gap year at age 32 or they retire, you know, for do a sabbatical for six months. And it's a very different way. And I think it's a, it's, it's a healthy way. I mean, yeah. I think it's a really positive. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think, um, and I think, I, I think corporate America is completely like, and they can't understand how to actually deal with it. They're like, wait a minute, we have to provide a place where we're not just creating industry and commerce, but we are serving an existential need. Uh, what? <laughs> yeah, it's not about just adding a ping pong table. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting to sort of see, like to work with organizations and see that grappling going on. But I agree with you. I think at the end of the day, it's a really good thing. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think I think we're moving, you know, there's a, my friend Gina Pell uh, uh, coined the term perennial. So, you know, it's mm. not like, you know, it's not that we're necessarily 
um, generation identified, we're maybe identified as to whether we're in that perennial state. And what she means by perennial is someone who's naturally curious, always evolving in a place where they want to be sort of timeless in, in, and ageless. And whether that's someone in their mid-20s or someone in their mid-70s, um, they can have actually sort of a, a common value system. And I think there may be some truth to that. I think we may see uh, over time, uh, especially with, you know, gosh, we have five generations in the workplace now at the same time. Um, and I know there are a lot of people at Airbnb where I was and I was twice the age of the average employee. There are a lot of younger people there at Airbnb I absolutely identified more with than mm-hmm. I did the handful of people my age in the company, which is there weren't many. But some of them, some of them really, my point of view with them was just very different. Um, so I think, you know, I think more and more it, it's not going to be, we're not going to be so generation stratified and that would be a good thing. I mean, hopefully we won't, won't all have to go live in Sun City or some some <laughs> retirement leisure world um, life. And, you know, a lot of people you know, older in life now move back here to New York, to Manhattan, to New yeah. York City and say, empty nester, no Connecticut for me. I'm moving back into the city. And and that's an interesting phenomena that didn't exist maybe 30 years ago. Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting. Let's fill in some of the gaps with you because we've, we've referenced Airbnb a number of times now. So you, there comes a time where, where you meet Brian Chesky, one of the founders of Airbnb. Tell me about that. The, like, how does this all come together? Well, what's bizarre, so I started my company, Joie de Vivre, when I was 26. Brian started Airbnb with his two founders when he was 26. And um, I, I was a pioneer as an early boutique hotelier. But by the time I was 52, when Brian reached me, I was no longer the pioneer. I was now the establishment. And when he approached me and said, there's this Airbnb thing, I was like, Really? People want to stay in each other's homes? Why? <laughs> I didn't get it. So I was like, I clearly was no longer sort of the, you know, the disruptive mindset. But I really appreciated Brian. Um, I re, you know, I was sold on Brian. Brian had this growth mindset, to use a little bit of Carol Dweck's work. Um, he really had a sense that he wanted to improve himself, not to just prove himself. And I was fascinated by that. I was also fascinated. He said, let's democratize hospitality. And you know, part of the reason I got out of the hospitality business, sold the company, was because more and more of the people who actually were investing in hotels were, were private equity firms. And nothing wrong with that. It's just that they were purely mercenary. Their interest in why they got into hospitality real estate was because the returns were higher. Whereas a lot of people got involved in hospitality in the past because their families had been in it mm. or they liked the spirit of, you know, serving people. So the idea of like, you know, creating micro entrepreneurs around the world who were going to be home sharing was like, it was interesting. Obviously it was disruptive and controversial and all that. But at the time I joined, it wasn't so much, it wasn't well known. This was um, very early 2013. Uh, the company was about 1% of the size it is today, maybe 2% of the size it is today. So it was a really small company. And I ultimately said yes with the idea it was going to be a part-time thing. And, you know, he tricked me <laughs> being, you know, there's no such thing as part-time in a, um, in a startup. So this is me, again, the habitat. I just ended up in the same habitat, but it was now uh, meaning working very hard and long hours. But I didn't mind it. And I, the thing I loved about it ultimately, Jonathan, was I was able to put some guardrails on it. Mm-hmm. I learned that. So... Because it wasn't my venture and it wasn't, you know, I wasn't the, I had to, I had to totally right size my ego. I'd been the, you know, the little mini, 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 mini version of Richard Branson at Virgin of Chip at Joie de Vivre. I was the face of the company and et cetera, et cetera. And the idea of, I used to be on the sage on the stage and now I was the guide on the side and I was here to serve this company and these three young millennial co-founders who were 20, 21 to 23 years younger than me. And it allowed me to have guardrails. And ultimately, three years into it, I went to a part-time status. Four years into it, I went to a strategic advisor status, which is what I've been for the last year and a half, which basically means I give them 30 hours a month. And so it's been beautiful. It's been a beautiful way to also learn about what does it mean to be a modern elder who is as much an intern as they are a mentor. So Deacon, let's dive into this idea of a, mod- a modern elder also. I mean, it's kind of funny that the term elder, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, I was like, wow, I don't want that association. No, not <laughs> you asked me 10 years ago. The thing that flipped the switch for me was probably you brought up Branson. Um, yeah. you know, like when, and he tells the story of how he went and I, I think was actually asked by um, 
how can I be totally spacing on uh, the name of uh, um, 27 Years in Captivity? <laughs> oh, Nelson Mandela. Yeah, Mandela. Yeah. But um, essentially to, uh, like, they came it's together. It's because you're aging it's a little age. bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's too funny. You're flipping a quote, I'm forgetting a name. It's like, man, we're showing ourselves here. But I'm good with it. M- me too. Um yeah, you know, the idea of, okay, so we're going to bring together this this council of elders who are, are the wisest, some of the wisest people out there who have been through profound change, suffering, massive, massive accomplishment in different levels, geopolitical, business, cultural, societal, to offer wisdom and guidance um, without an expectation of remuneration just because yeah. it was time to share. And I was like, huh, so they're really they're kind of like reclaiming this thing, but still that was in the context. Most of the people who were part of that group were in that much later stage in life. That's so right. The idea of, of creating an association decades earlier is interesting to me, but also I'm still not entirely settled with yeah. it. Well, let's talk about it because yeah. I, I hear you. I mean, my publisher wasn't settled on it either. In yeah. fact, the, the book was originally supposed to be called Modern Elder and now it's called The Wisdom at Work, right. The Making of a Modern Elder because they said, oh, it's like, let's not go with it too forward as the as the name. Well, first of all, I think an elder is someone who is older than the people that they're surrounded by. And so you could be an elder in your early 40s if you're surrounded by people in their mid-20s. It means you have more experience. Maybe a little bit of judgment has, good judgment has been built up from your experience and from your skin, knee, or your broken toe or whatever it is in, in life. And you can share that. So I, I think there's uh, there's that. I, so I think elder is is a really a relative term. And at at Airbnb, if I joined at age fifty two, average age in the company was twenty six and a half. So I was twice the age of everybody. Um, and so I was definitely an elder. I didn't initially call myself that. It was when Joe Gebbia, um, one of the other co-founders, and I started spending a lot of time together, and I sort of was becoming his almost like his personal coach and, you know, just a, an advisor, just spending a lot of personal time with him. At some point I just realized God, I'm, I'm like a modern elder. And the, the, but the, the difference between the traditional elder of the past is they were regarded with reverence. And in some societies in Asia and in Latin America, still there's a little bit of that. Although the more digital we get, the, the, the less it is true. So that regarded with reverence is what I saw with traditional elder, but I think the modern elder is regarded for their relevance. And the relevance means that you better be as much of the curious soul as you are the wise elder, meaning you better be as focused on learning as you are on teaching. And that's why I say, I joined Airbnb and a week into it, I realized, wow, I have all of this sort of old school bricks and mortar hospitality knowledge and I was in a world that was full of tech lingo. I didn't understand what they were saying. So I realized that I better become the curious beginner's mind in the room asking questions about technology. Now, if it was just asking a, a little silly word that I didn't understand, I, I had people in the room who were my tech translators and right. they'd help me. But sometimes I actually pointed out a lot of blind spots that the company hadn't thought of because most people were focusing on optimizing and I was asking the big why and what if questions. And um, it was beautiful how all of a sudden the oldest person in the room was asking sometimes the the most innocent questions, but sometimes those questions helped us to see these blind spots. And so I, I really believe that um, to be young and old at the same time, um, which is we are the, at my age, almost 58, I'm sort of the new young old, meaning I'll spend the next 20 or 25 years till my early 80s in a very operationally active role in whatever I'm doing. I have no, no doubt about that. And who knows, maybe way beyond that. So I'm not old or elderly yet. And I think that we need to liberate the word elder from elderly. And I'm not saying that elderly is a bad word, but I think when we think of elderly, we think of someone who is actually in a later stage of needing support and and maybe not being able to sort of give back in that kind of legacy way. And so um, I think reclaiming a word is not unusual. The Yankees um, were the colonists and the Brits called them Yankees because they were the dandy Yankees. They sort of like t- testing their masculinity. Um, being black uh, in the South was a negative word until black is beautiful actually came out and, and Malcolm X started speaking about, we are black. And so that was a word that got reclaimed. Queer was a re- word that got reclaimed. 
And I think elder needs to be reclaimed because if we're going to live longer and if we're going to be in the stage of life from our 50s to maybe, you know, 80s, there's a period of life where we have something to offer. And if we don't, especially in a world where power is cascading to the young, Mm. you know, I I think Travis at Uber might still have his job if he had a modern elder by his side to sort of just mellow him out and tell him, you know, dude, you've got to mature your leadership uh, behavior here because you're running a big global company now. So I, I, I do believe that there's a there's a place in the world for the modern elder. Um, and so, yeah, I'm out there trying to help us to reclaim that word. It's interesting, too, because I think language really does matter. And, uh, you know, I have a background in the fitness industry, and there was a time where, um, you know, the, the holy grail was to try and market to the, quote, silver sneakers generation. <laughs> And I was recently reflecting on the fact that we define that, and this was probably when I was in my mid thirties or something like that, you know, and, and that was the mid fifties generation. And I'm thinking to myself, like, if you told, like, if you referred to me right now or any of my friends as like the silver sneakers generation, I would probably want, I'm a, I'm a passive guy, but I'd probably want to clock you. Well, how'd you like getting your AARP card at age 50? I mean, like, come on. Dude, wait. That's uh, our rite of passage. Right, because we make so many, I mean, the language we use, I think- is so important because it, it it comes along with these assumptions yeah. about capabilities and how we treat people and and um, how we choose to interact with them. The value that, and when we step into that language, I think we either constrain or free ourselves to be a certain way in the world. And when other people impose that language on us or those titles or those all the assumptions come along with it. Sure. And so it's really interesting to hear about your experience at Airbnb because it seems like it was unusually open. Like you had senior management and people in the company who were incredibly open to the fact that, yes, the guy's twice our age and who cares? He's done some incredible things. He's curious, he's open-minded and there's astonishing value across the entire spectrum of age. And let's acknowledge that I was lucky. And that's in uh-huh. writing this book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, I ended up interviewing about 150 other people who did not have my good positive situation that, you know, the founders of a company came looking for them. But I think what's interesting is that the young founders of Airbnb said, why is it when we think we have about g- diversity, we only think about, you know, gender and race and maybe LGBT issues, maybe disability issues, but we actually don't think about age. We don't think of age as a demographic mm. that uh, where diversity is important. And um, what's fascinating is that you know the world is getting older, and and this is actually a, a very relevant demographic. So I, I, part of what I want to do is help to create a almost a new generational compact, where we realize with five generations in the workplace, there's a lot we can learn from each other. But I, I, I guess more than anything, the experience I've had has helped me to see that we have such an opportunity to recognize that um, the second half of life is not something that we should cringe about. The U-curve of happiness proves that. People are, get happier. But there's a word that I didn't know when I, before I started writing this book, and it's called liminal. Mm. Where you're, when you're in a liminal state, you're in a transitional state. And it's, um, you know, when you're in puberty, you're in liminal. When you're in menopause, you're in liminal. What's interesting is that we have a tendency to think of midlife is not a liminal period. It's just the start of the decline. And it, in fact, I'd like to think of, you know, I hate to use a, a overused m- metaphor, but um, the butterfly uh, was first a caterpillar. And if if we were a caterpillar in our earlier years and we r- seem to, to realize, and there's a lot of data that shows this, that maybe our middle years, maybe our 40s and our 50s are almost like a cocoon. It's the chrysalis. And then we come out the other side, not as this person in a wheelchair, not as this person, you know, who's, you know, having a hard time remembering things, not as this person who's sort of staring at, you know, the end of their life in three to five years. No, we actually come out the other side as a butterfly. And this butterfly is this opportunity to realize we have, you know, our physical peak, maybe our twenties, our financial peak, maybe around age 50 in terms of salary, but our emotional peak is later in life. We have developed pattern recognition around ourselves and others. And therefore, there's a wisdom that has actually started to build up in us. And the question is, where do we share that wisdom? In the movie, The, the Intern, Robert De Niro mm. 
uh, with, with Anne Hathaway, he is quoted as he's quote, he says basically, um, musicians don't retire. They quit when there's no more music left inside of them. If we could imagine that our music is wisdom and the question is, who are we sharing that with? And, um, that's how elders have always been. The reason that elders as a, you know, a figurehead in society became less important over time. There are many reasons for it, but part of it was because uh, the industrial revolution moved us from agriculture to, to brawn. I mean, being, you know, you didn't need to necessarily be an elder to be on the industrial assembly line, but in, on a farm, you really appreciated that farmer's almanac kind of mindset that the 70 year old farmer had. And so, and then we go to technology era and even more so, it's like, it's all about the young. So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the young. I I think the fact that you have brilliant technologists in their early twenties creating global giants before their 30th birthday is fascinating. And yet maybe they need to be paired with someone a little bit older, not because they necessarily need somebody to drive them because they're not, you know, driver's age yet to lead a company, but no, maybe it's because there's something that we can offer them. And that sort of emotional intelligence, good judgment, leadership, understanding, and strategic thinking. I was supposed to be the head of global hospitality for, for Airbnb, and which was a great thing. And three or four weeks into it, Brian said, you're now in, in charge of strategy too. I like the way your mind works. And it's like, okay, I've never worked for McKinsey or Bain or any kind of any strategy firm, but he really liked the synthesis. One of the things that happens as we get older that's interesting is our recall Definitely, and uh, you know, both recall and quickness goes away. Or it doesn't go away, but it actually it's not it, it diminishes some. But the thing that actually gets better as you get older, in terms of your brain, is all-wheel drive. You are able to shift from left to right brain much more fluently. And what does that mean? It means that actually you get the gist of things. You're able to think systemically, holistically, and you're able to sort of see the forest and not get caught up in the trees. And frankly, young founders of companies get caught up in the trees all the time. And so part of what I had to do regularly in my sort of wisdom role was to help us to see, okay, where are we going? You know, what's the North Star? And and to sort of see holistically, do we really see here? You know, as you get older, you start seeing your themes in your life and you start seeing that that thread. And then applying that to young people in a way where they're hungry for it and you're not doing it. I like to say I was interning publicly and mentoring privately. So it's not about me sort of like being the highly regarded person. It was like having a private conversation with Brian on a Saturday. We did it all the time where I could point out some things about how he ran a meeting and could have done it differently or the just thinking of like, you know what, have you seen that we we keep repeating something here Mm. as a company? And that kind of thinking is what someone who's a little older could offer. And it, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. You're offering this in the context of business, but like as you're speaking, you know, it becomes clear to me that this this is about life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. this is about this role across. It's it's about your willingness to move into um, move through life and continuously reexamine your ego. Yeah. Um, you know, for you, if you want to yeah. play that role of a, of a mentor or an elder, you, you use the phrase mentor, yeah. which I think is a really interesting blend of, okay, so yes, there is a knowing that you have something to offer and simultaneously a knowing that you have a lot to learn. Yeah. Um, and to stand in, in that duality is not, it's, it's a cute name. It's, you know, it's fun to, it's a great notion, right? but to actually, you know, operationalize that in your life and in your work every day yep. can't necessarily be a real easy thing, especially if you have come out of a history of contribution where you did, you know, you're like, but I, but I accumulated all this. I did all this. Like right. I got all these accolades. I built this thing. And then to sort of like stand back in that place where like, oh, I'm showing up and sure I have something to offer, but man, I have something to learn from all of these others. Yeah, I you know Liz Gilbert's uh, TED Talk 2009 was so beautiful, I and mean, she talked about how hard it was to have such a success with Eat, Pray, Love because um, how do you follow that up? And if we tend to spend our lives trying to live up to something from the past without actually focusing on moving forward with the learning and the curiosity that is ahead of you, looking in your rearview mirror is not necessarily the best way to to drive your life 
there's certainly things to be learned from the past, but more often I think it's trying to look at that open road and, and have the sense of faith and just being in the moment of sort of seeing what's ahead. And I think that was, that's been, you know, I, I like to meditate and that helps me to sort of be in the moment and, you know, throughout my day, not just when I'm meditating. And um, I, I really appreciate the fact that as I've gotten older, I've really recognized that being present is one of the most unique and unu- yeah, unusual qualities, especially in a distracted world where everybody has their iPhone out. And even the word presence is the ob- op- opposite of absence. And absence is the way we live a lot of our lives. And it's we were living absence before we had the iPhone, but the iPhone took us even further in the direction of absence. And so I, I'm a real believer in the idea that as you get older, you start honing some emotional skills that uh, and some habits and, and, and presence, learning how to actually uh, inhabit what presence is. I, I gave a talk at the Summit Series guys thing in Utah uh, uh, last month. And, you know, I was, I'm way older than most of the people there. And I was giving a talk on wisdom and there was an owl out in front and it was on someone's arm and, and it, you know, the, it was like a bird trainer. And, and, and so I, I asked the bird trainer, so why is the owl the wisest animal in the, in the forest? Why, why is that? Why does why, the owl embody wisdom? I'm about to go give a speech on wisdom. So tell me. And he says, it's because they're the best listener. There's no other animal in the forest that actually has a more attuned ability to listen so that's a great, um, you know, a metaphor for us to think about as how do we become a, a listener? You know, knowledge speaks and wisdom listens. And to me, that premise that as we get older, we become more present with our listening and we are less distracted by all the other stuff in our brain and around the world that's, you know, calling for our attention. But in that moment, we have that presence. I, I think it's more needed than ever, you know, Mother Teresa talked about, you know, more than anything else, what we needed was just the sense of being, have attention being paid to us. And I, I do believe that that is more necessary in a technological world than ever before. Mm, yeah, I totally agree with that. I think uh, the more we're distracted, the more that becomes a rare commodity. And 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 also, I mean, reflecting on what you you were just offering, like that, it occurs to me that um, I think most of us, feel like the value of our contribution is based on an association with what we have created or Mm. the success that we've had in our past rather than how the things that we have done in our past have changed us as a human being. Yeah. Um, And then what we had now have to offer because of whatever success or failure we've had in our past. And if we stand in that latter thing as the basis of what we have to offer rather than the accolades and the things we've built and done in the past, then I think it's a lot easier to let go of your ego and to let go of the fact like, I don't need to be recognized for what I've done. Yeah. You know, cause, cause I know who it's made me in this place in my life. And that opens you to then listen and to be present, to be curious and to surrender and to take on the mentor um, uh, sort of mindset and, and to not have to stand yeah. in this place of ego. Yeah, someone once said, uh, the first half of your life is about being interesting, and the second half of your life is about being interested. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's the shift from the first half of the life is more about ego. And let's be clear, when I say ego, I mean, ego is a good thing. It is something that creates a structure that helps you to understand who you are. It's a way to not be too overly merged with other people. It's what we do in you know in our early childhood to to start to individuate from our, especially our mother, but our parents in general. Problem is that individuation process and then the structure you build around that ego, the scaffolding around the ego that in off, often is the thing that sort of is, is feeding you, is you get, you start believing that the scaffolding is the building or that the ego is the self. And when you get to your second half of your life, and especially if you've had a few um, major you know, uh, speed bumps along the way, you start to realize that there's something deeper than the ego. And it's that deeper, you know, movement from ego to soul that, um, I think is often accompanied with 
midlife. And uh, partly because I think maybe in midlife you start the mysteries of life get a little bit more interesting. You know, we're full of wonder as a kid. You know, the, wild, the wonderful world of Disney and being wonder like like oh wow why is why is the sky blue and and then we put our blinders on for about thirty or forty years and then we move into awe. And um, in the latter part of our life, we awe is a word that becomes more interesting to us because it helps to show the magnitude of the world that we live in. At this modern elder academy that we're doing in in, in Mexico, we I have Dr. Keltner coming, and he's you know they yeah, had, one of the leading researchers yeah, in awe. Yeah. He's one of the leading researchers in awe. He's now my neighbor down in, oh, in Pescadero, awesome. <laughs> down in Baja, and um, he's coming to do a week with us on you know midlife awe and how do you you know reacquaint yourself with that sense of wonder and awe, and uh, and how does awe help create presence and and greater emotional well being? So. Um, uh, you know, part of the fun thing about this modern elder academy is literally, it's like I get to invite some of the greatest people I know to come and down and do a week with me. So yeah, that's amazing. So tell me more because I was actually going to circle back to that because yeah. I'm now I'm fascinated by, by mean, this. You should come down and guess I back know, a little bit. Um, tell me more about. I mean, what was the genesis and what is it really about? Yeah. So back to what I was saying uh, earlier, it was that the midlife is. Ma- massively missing ritual and it's m- missing rite of passage missing there's so much transition that happens in midlife and it most of it's silent especially for men um and so as i was starting to write the book um about 15 16 months ago i was down in baja where i have a home um i just had one home you know right on the beach and it was a, a great place to write a book and i was interviewing people and i was just so uh um, fascinated by the amount of anxiety and bewilderment I've, I heard from people in midlife. And one day I just said out of the blue to some of my friends down there who live down in, in Baja, which is in Mexico, uh, Baja California Sur, why don't we just create an academy here? And I started doing some research. There's nothing out there, um, nothing that's specific to midlife and has a curriculum. There's lots of great, you know, uh, retreat Spons centers and stuff like oh, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Omega and Esalen. I'm on the board of Esalen Institute and Big Sur. And, but there was nothing that was specific to midlife and had a specific curriculum. And so, you know, the first half of 2018, we had 153 people go through one week and two week programs through the beta program, uh, through the beta process of us developing the curriculum. And um, we open in November um, and the, you know, it's modernelderacademy.org. It's a social enterprise. So 50% of the people are on scholarship. So you'll have an investment banker and a social worker walking down the beach together on a break to sort of like basically help teach each other, you know, what is the, what is the, what's the next era of their life going to be about? So, and people from all ages and from all over the world, the first, our first week open to the public we have a 31-year-old junior elder from Kenya coming as part of the, the cohort. And the cohort's 12 to 18 people, not big. And it's week a week long. And it's a, a pretty transformational experience using the four lessons in my book, Wisdom at Work, to evolve the first lesson, to learn the second lesson, to collaborate the third lesson, and to counsel the fourth lesson. Mm. Um, and... Um, the real intent of it, and we actually have already a second location we're looking at, which is because we can see the demand is so high, what we really believe is people in midlife need a place where they can connect with each other and talk about what's next. But there also needs to be a curriculum that helps them understand that, you know, they had adolescence in their, you know, during their teen years, but you can have middlelessence, which is a word that's not known outside of academia, but middlelessence is ha- what happens typically in our 50s. And it's basically going through a bunch of changes again. Uh, for women, it's men- menopause often. Um, and for men, there's an and- something called andropause, which is the male version of menopause. But it's not just that. It's the variety of other things that are happening both to our bodies and our emotions in ways that we as a society haven't properly acknowledged. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So we talk about the midlife, uh, the U curve of happiness and the midlife atrium and right. what it means to be a modern elder. Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting you use the phrase in ways that we don't acknowledge. And my sense is it's actually much worse than that's in ways that we, we fight like hell. Oh, for sure. Not to acknowledge. And we want to step away from, and we don't want to say, I'm, I'm that person or we hide. Yeah. But I agree with you. I do believe we're in this moment where 
there's a reclamation or there's a, there's an opportunity for a yeah. reclamation of, of wisdom associated with and grace associated with a window of life where normally it's like, well, I don't want to tell you my age, Yeah, you know? Um, yeah. and yeah, I, th- I think Could we we're make aging aspirational. Again? Right. Right. I think, <laughs> I think we're in an interesting moment around that. Um, there is a, we've run different retreats and things like that over the years where we brought together, uh, different people. And there's, um, as you were, you were talking about the, the two folks walking down the beach together, mm-hmm. a picture popped into my mind, which is kind of like a commentary on this and, and on my own judgment and assumptions. We had a group of people that were, um, spending, uh, three or four days together in this giant old log cabin on top of a mountain in Salt Lake City. And one afternoon, I took a look out back on a break during lunch and I see one of the people who was a guy in his sort of like mid to late fifties sitting off uh, on a rock and next to him was the youngest guy in the group who was maybe 20 years old. Mm. And they had, um, they had a, a, something open, like a little document or something they were looking at. And, and I took a picture and because I was like, you know, this is a beautiful shot of these mm. two people sort of like working together. And I, and I showed both of them, that picture, once I had it developed a month or two later, and I said, this is such a beautiful moment, I want to capture it. We have, you know, here's the older gentleman sitting next to the young guy, mentoring him and helping him answer questions and like, you know, transmitting this wisdom. And the dude in his fifties looks at me, he's like, you got that totally wrong. (laughs) And I said, what was actually happening? He's like, I was struggling with something with one of my children. Oh, wow. And I was asking this, the, the 20 year old, for insight, for yeah. wisdom to help me through. Yeah. I was like, wow. Yeah. I mean, look at the assumptions that I made right there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, the fact that uh, wisdom can flow in both directions yeah. uh, is a fascinating phenomenon. It's not one that we have much history with, frankly, in society. But in a technological era, um, it's going to become more and more evident. Mm. Yeah. I hear you. So this feels like a good place for us to uh, to come full circle. So I as agree. we so as we sit here in the name of this good life project, if I offer out that 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 phrase to live a good life, what comes up for you? I think to live a good life is to live a curious life. It's to live a life that is fascinated by possibility and fascinated by what by what we haven't learned yet. Um, and so I I believe curiosity is you know, the elixir for creativity and innovation as well as for resilience. So I, I think the, the ultimate good life is a, is a life full of curiosity. Mm. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make the show possible. You can check them out in the links that we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode and then share the Good Life Project love with friends. When ideas become conversations that lead to action, that is when real change takes hold. See you next time.